0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Kristen Kimball, and I'm going to be reading from my book, The Dirty Life, which is about the year that we started our farm in northern New York. Two people and one cow was a lopsided equation. Our refrigerator was so full of dairy products in various forms, there was no room for anything else. One morning, I opened it to find some cream, and a quart jar of milk fell on my foot. We have to do something about this, I said. Mark had finished his breakfast and was scanning the weekly circular for useful tools. There's a litter of piglets for sale 20 minutes north, he said. They could drink some milk. I grabbed the phone and dialed, and before I'd hung up, I'd agreed to buy four, with a fifth thrown in for free. Because he had fits, the lady said, and something was wrong with his neck. Mark was busy that morning trying to untangle the electrical panel in the west barn, so I drove by myself to pick them up. When I got there, I peered over the side of the horse stall where the piglets were sleeping in a heap and then drew back. I'd pictured creatures the size of chihuahuas, but they were twice that size. The crate I'd brought to haul them home in was way too small. We did not own a truck, and the lady I was buying them from did not have time to haul them. I shrugged, put an old bedspread into the hatchback of my Honda, shoved the squealing pigs in, and jimmied a pallet into place in the back seat. The pigs made short work of the bedspread, which was soon crumpled uselessly in the corner, but the pallet held until the moment I pulled into the farm driveway, when they all scrambled over the back seat like invaders over a parapet. The stink of pig in the upholstery was muted until warmer weather arrived, and then it came on hard and stayed. We fished the piglets out of the car one by one and carried them to Delia's pen, which Mark had divided, down the center with scrap lumber. We named the deformed one Torque. The pigs became my responsibility. Mark and I were getting into power struggles over every little decision that needed to be made, neither of us wanting to lose control. To diffuse tension, we'd decided to split the farm in two. Each of us was captain of half the farm. As a farm management strategy, it was awkward, but it was necessary for the preservation of our relationship at that time. When we divided the livestock, Mark got charge of our one-cow dairy. Lucky me, I got the pigs. By the time they arrived, my pigs were past the coy, curly-tailed stage and well into the voracious, menacing stage. Pigs really do have terrifically gluttonous natures. They can't help it. We've bred them to be professional eaters. Meat packed on as fast as possible onto four stumpy legs they can gain more than a pound a day. That kind of growth is fueled by prodigious appetite, and in a group situation, at feeding time, they are viciously competitive, using their dense bodies to check and their sharp teeth to bite and their deep-throated barks to intimidate. The worst part of my day quickly became the moment when I would scramble over their pen wall carrying a five-gallon bucket full of sour skim milk mixed with cornmeal and wade through a swarm of pig bodies intent on knocking me down. More than once, I ended up on my back, covered in sour milk and pig manure, shoved and bitten by five frenzied beasts. One-on-one they were less menacing, but no less troublesome. One pig had figured out how to wiggle past the wall that divided the pig pen from the cow pen— and when I arrived at the farm in the morning, I'd find her in with Delia. There was no way to get her back in the proper place without catching her, lifting her, and dropping her over the chest-high barrier. It was like catching a large, greased watermelon, a shockingly fast and willful one, one with an ear-piercing squeal. I hit pig bottom one day during the darkest week of December, when the temperatures had ventured tentatively above freezing, and the snow wilted into chilly, slick-bottomed puddles. I was alone on the farm, Mark off to the farmer's market in Troy, networking. Aside from chores and milking, my only job of the day was to move the pigs out of their pen in the west barn, which they'd outgrown, and into the roomy run-in of the east barn 30 feet away, which I had already filled with a thick layer of mulch hay. I figured I could get this done quickly and then go home, stoke up the fire, and enjoy the almost unimaginable luxury of a quiet, empty house, a hot bath, and a book. The problem was that when it came down to it, I realized I had no idea how I was going to move those pigs. They'd become too big to carry. I knew from experience that they would not herd, and if i tried to push them, they would just push back. I suspected if they got loose outside, they'd be gone quite possibly for good. Okay, I thought. I'm a smart person. I can figure out how to move five pigs 30 feet. The thing to do, I decided, was to build a chute. I filled a wheelbarrow with things I found in the machine shop that looked like they might be useful. A hammer, a saw, and, Eureka, some pieces of metal roofing, three feet wide by 15 feet long. Then I walked back to the barns and stared at my problem. The pig pen had a door that let out onto the alley between the two barns, but the door to the run-in was all the way around on the east barn's south side. I was thinking I would somehow build a laneway for the pigs with the sheets of roofing, but I didn't have enough material to get all the way to the door of the east barn. Just then, as if on cue, a wet, sleety snow began to fall. The bath and the book that I had been looking forward to all week began to seem remote. I decided I was overthinking it, trying to come up with an elegant solution when any solution would do. We weren't building the Taj Mahal here, I reminded myself. We were trying to move five pigs 30 feet. So I picked up the saw from the wheelbarrow and began cutting a hole in the wall of the east barn run-in, directly across from the door to the pig pen. I was struggling mightily with the sawing, making very little progress, and the sleet was dripping off the edge of the barn down the collar of my coat, When I heard a pickup idling in the driveway, I looked up to see Shep Shields, our neighbor from over the hill, hobbling toward me. Shep had become a daily visitor, bringing us small things from his barn that he thought we could use, or sometimes a box of cake he picked up at the store. On my birthday, he brought me a potted plant. He squinted at me through the sleep. I thought about how I must look, wet, red-fingered from the cold, cutting a hole in a perfectly good barn for no apparent reason. I don't want to tell you what to do, Shep began. This, I'd found, was a very common statement in the North Country. You're not considered rude if you don't return phone calls, or if you get drunk while working, or fail to show up as promised. But telling someone how to do something is bad form and requires a disclaimer. I braced myself. I don't want to tell you what to do, Shep said, but that saw you're using? That's a hacksaw. You want a wood saw and he hobbled back to his truck and left. I was coming up against a cold, hard truth. I was well-educated, well-read, and well-traveled. I could hold my own in cocktail conversation most places in the world, but when it came to physical work, I was virtually retarded. After I'd traded the hacksaw for a wood saw and made a pig-sized hole in the barn wall, I propped the rusty roofing into a chute held together with baling twine, and opened the pen door. I braced myself for a five-pig stampede, but absolutely nothing happened. I'd baited the chute and the run-in with loaves of old bread soaked in sour milk, but for once the damn pigs weren't hungry. They had no desire to leave their snug, dry pen, and no amount of shoving, shouting, begging, or cursing would make them change their minds. I was cold, wet, and exhausted, and the sun was going down. It was time to milk Delia again. I'd pinned the pig's door open in such a way that I'd have to disassemble the entire chute in order to close it, something I was not at that moment willing to do. I finished the chores and left, hoping the pigs would feel bolder and hungrier in the dark and find their way through the chute to the run-in on their own. I fell asleep as soon as I'd stripped off my clothes and had bad dreams about pigs all night. Mark did not get home from Troy until past midnight, so I got up alone the next morning and went to the farm to milk. It was still mostly dark when I pulled up to the barn, but as my headlights swept the alley, I could see that my chute was toast. The pigs had completely flattened it, and when I got out of the car, I found their little pointy tracks all over the barnyard. I looked around. I listened intently. No sign of them. I looked in the pen and in the run-in but both were echoey and empty. It slowly dawned on me what a bad situation this was. They could be anywhere by now, in the woods, rooting up the neighbor's semi-frozen lawn, or wandering on the road, where they could cause a serious accident. I jumped back in the car with a sick feeling and drove to the house. Mark was squirreled under the covers, deeply asleep. I told him a strategically edited version of the story, and he got out of bed and into his clothes, not happy, but at least on the move, We drove to the farm in peevish silence. The sun was fully up by then, and we could see the tracks more clearly in the melting snow. I thought about how the devil is supposed to have a cloven foot, just like the pig. Mark circled around, trying to figure out which direction they'd headed, but the tracks didn't seem to go anywhere. I was off to the barn to get a bucket of grain with which to bait them, if we ever found them, when I heard a familiar snorting bark from inside the run-in. I peered over the gate and saw one of the pigs emerging from underneath the hay, and then four other pig-like lumps began to stir, hay falling from their backs. All home, all safe, exactly where I wanted them. Mark stood and watched, shaking his head. I gave him a triumphant smile and told him I had everything under control, and he could feel free to go home and back to bed. I needed to get him out of there before he noticed the hole in the side of the barn, and I needed to figure out how to fix it. As I patched the barn with scrap lumber, pig-tight but ugly, I was forced to confront my own prejudice. I had come to the farm with the unarticulated belief that concrete things were for dumb people and abstract things were for smart people. I thought the physical world, the trades, was the place you ended up if you weren't bright or ambitious enough to handle a white-collar job. Did I really think that a person with a genius for fixing engines, or for building, or for husbanding cows, was less brilliant than a person who writes ad copy or interprets the law? Apparently I did, though it amazes me now. I ordered books from the library about construction, plumbing, and electricity, and discovered that reading them was like trying to learn in a foreign language. The simplest things, the names of unknown tools or hardware, the names for parts of structures, created dead ends that required answers and more research. There's no better cure for snobbery than a good ass-kicking. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. <laughs>